Welcome to Campfire Football. I'm Sebastian North. This is episode 88. Sam Chapel of the Denver Soccer Society. So, standing in the shadows of downtown Denver, situated in a parking lot right next to Ball Arena, where the Colorado Avalanche and the Denver Nuggets play, are two five-a-side turf football pitches meant to be there for people to just come and play. These are the work of Sam Chapel of Denver Soccer Society, and today we welcome him onto the show to talk about his inspiration, what he had to do to make this happen, and the real question, of course, why? Why do you decide to find a space, put two five-side pitches down, and dedicate your time and effort to use football as a binding agent? Enjoy the episode. Sam Chapel, you're from Denver Soccer Society. You started this whole thing. And as a local soccer guy, this is super unique. Like in my entire life being here, I've never seen anyone do anything like this that actually has legs to be able to stick around beyond like actually building a, a full blown facility. So just tell us about yourself, where you're from, what, what, you know, just frivolous things like what teams you like and players you like, and also what kind of got this whole journey started for you yeah absolutely um yeah first first off thanks for having me on um it's always cool to connect with the different soccer folks here in denver um i think denver as a whole is a underrated soccer city um and i i think that continues to grow and, and so it, it's always cool to chat with people that that appreciate what, what's going on and, um, yeah, really, really invest in, in that community. Um, yeah, kind of a bit about myself. I grew up in Southern California, um, played for, played for the top clubs there, um, was part of like the, uh, inaugural three seasons of, the development academy before I went to school, went to college. So I got to play with a lot of really good guys um, growing up, guys that like are still playing in the MLS, ESL. Um, but I think the biggest impact I saw or, or that soccer had on, had on my life growing up was um, a lot of times being, being the only white kid on my team in growing up in LA playing soccer um, and just that acceptance that primarily the Hispanic community gave me um, and kind of made me feel like one of their own. And um, from, from seven, eight years old, like I, I realized the, the unifying spirit and power that, that the game had um, just as a, as a beneficiary as a little kid. Um, so it, it's always been from, yeah, from what I can remember, it's all soccer has always been a very unifying thing for me. Um, but yeah, when I, when I was graduated high school, I went to play at Liberty university, um, division one school in in Virginia. Um, we played in the big South conference. So, um, Played a lot of schools in North and South Carolina, Georgia, Maryland. Um, kind of the big boys that we played were UVA, Carolina, 
Maryland. So yeah, I was a very average division one player. Um, so the, the idea of playing, playing beyond college was, would have been a bad idea. I would have been sleeping on a lot of couches and not paying a lot of, paying a lot of my own bills. So that was kind of the end of my, my competitive career, but hopefully that gives you a kind of a background of where, where I came from soccer wise. Yeah. And then, so you leave college, did you stay in the game pretty much right away or did you just like, you know, get a job, do something else for a little while and get called back? For sure. For sure. Yeah. When I was, when I was done with school, I graduated a semester early um, and I immediately um, moved to, um, to Brazil and I moved to a city called Curitiba, which is in the South. Um, it's a medium sized Brazilian city, but um, kind of the reason, the reason for moving there is I started working for a nonprofit that did um, social engagement with soccer fans um, around major tournaments. So it's a group called Lions Raw. They're based in the UK, but as we all know, when countries and cities host host major tournaments they'll bring in thousands of people for four to five days but only three hours of of that four to five day span are those fans actually attending a game um the rest of the time they're in the city unfortunately they're they're just drinking and they're a lot of times just creating havoc um so the the organization I worked for was providing engagement opportunities for those traveling fans. So fans would show up one day, they'd attend their team's match on the first day, day two, three, and four. We had guys working at schools in local Brazilian cities, um, working with kids um, and just kind of sharing that message that, that like the, the party aspect of football is great like it, it's a it's a huge thing and we love it but it can lead to to bad outcomes especially for people that are hosting um so we were able to kind of introduce them to opportunities that football is more than just the party it's it's about unifying with other people and and being a good guest um so yeah i lived in brazil for a year when i was done with school um and that's kind of when my my five aside um experience really really blossomed like I thought it was all growing up but but living in Brazil like every night of the week was playing on um, playing on pitches that are super similar to Democratic society so that's kind of my story of what I was done with school when I when I really finished playing competitively that's funny so then the whole story of what happened really with brazil in hosting the world cup i mean obviously there's the most documented thing was the stadium in, in uh, manaus that didn't really belong there in the first place and now doesn't really have whole you know all that much of a role to play and this was a you know this was something that was talked about a lot in in the lead up to the world cup obviously in the lead up to this upcoming one in qatar uh, that massive infrastructures get built for a very short period of time. Obviously, the Olympics was a major flashpoint for Brazil in that as well. But for you, having gotten to see that, and uh, Curitiba, was there 
Did they host a World Cup game? Did they host? host yeah, a World Cup game? I thought they did. Yeah, we hosted hosted four group games, um, and unfortunately, it's just kind of the 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 side effect of a massive amount of money going into going into cities like that. And unfortunately, the, the those power brokers are, are usually somewhat connected to the the local club or the local stadium, and that money gets directly like invested into those stadiums. And what was really cool about, about Curitiba as a, as a whole is it's a city that, that really takes care of its citizens. Um, there's obviously like a huge discrepancy between the rich Brazilians and, and poor Brazilians, but, but the city of Curitiba, I feel like does a really good job at trying to bridge that gap. Um, and you could see that as how they welcomed fans from around the world and how they invested in their stadium. Um, they, yeah, Atletico Paranaense is a, is a huge club for the region, but from Brazilian standards, they're middle of the table. Um, but they were really, they did a really good job at taking that World Cup money. Um, they didn't try to push the poor out of the city during the during the tournament to, to kind of show face, um, they, they did their best to welcome them in. And that, that, that's partially why the organization I worked with chose that city uh, as a, as a real impact city, um, because they're super welcoming and super willing to do those, this type of engagement with, with local partners. Um, but yeah, unfortunately these, these massive, Massive stadiums are built and are rarely ever used again. I went to England, some follow in that World Cup, and that stadium was only eighty percent done. Like even even in a a city and a and and for a club that would put that to use, like they they couldn't finish it on time. Wow! So that must have had a real impression on you as well, though, to see the way things were being conducted in different areas in different uh, regions of Brazil and to see that the city you were living in and the organization you were working for was doing something that, yeah, it's inspiring in the sense that it's not the horror story that everyone heard. Unfortunately, I don't think very many people heard what was going on in Curitiba. Um, So it's, that must've had a big impression on you just to, just to see it that different way of doing things. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was, it was Russian fans next to England fans, next to Argentinian fans, next to a handful of Americans, all working together, investing in, in, in kids' lives for the time that they were there. Um, there's obviously like the really fun banter that, that you can never get around and that, that, that is awesome. But like, there was not the, the typical hooliganism that, that you, that you see kind of take up the headlines, um, around major tournaments. Um, obviously I wish every, every city at every major tournament had an operation like that and had a, had a long-term investment. Um, but that, I think that's, I think we're moving in the right direction, um, in terms of not losing that passion in the game losing that like the fun banter of it um but of of true hooliganism and and yeah just just 
it doesn't do any good. Like, um, it's just so much more enjoyable as a fan, as a player to, to respect the guy you're, you're sitting next to, or to respect the guy you're kicking. Like, even if you are tackling hard, like you guys respect each other. And like, at the end of the day, you shake hands. Like it's just such, at the end of the day, it's such better enjoyment for everybody involved. And, And I think the game naturally supports that it's, it's us fans that, that and players that go the different direction. Yeah. And I mean, my experience is I went to uh, the world cup in Russia. I also went to the euros in Portugal in 2004. And one thing that I noticed was, and I don't know if this is, you know, actually the way it works or not, but when I was in smaller cities, fans seemed to be more docile so when I went to see the Czech Republic against Albania in, in 2004, it was in Aveiro, which is a not very big town in Portugal. And it was, it was pretty relaxed there. And the, there were quite a few, um, I think it was, uh, there were quite a few Dutch supporters there because the Dutch were playing uh in Porto and a lot of them were there just kind of hanging around. So there were people from different nationalities and everyone was having a really nice time. Right. And then when we went into Porto, things got a little bit crazier when the Dutch and the Czechs played each other, it was like a little bit sketchy at times. And when I was in Russia, I was in Kazan and then Nizhny Novgorod where Croatia played against Argentina. And these two fans sets of fans were in the streets singing basically at each other, but it was all good. It was, it was really a great atmosphere. And then I got to Moscow and that's where I saw just all kinds of craziness. Right. So sometimes I wonder if, you know, a place like Sao Paulo would be more likely to, you know, or Rio is where you're going to probably see the most amount of insanity. It's kind of like, I mean, during the euros, right. London was just the stop at the end point for a lot of the craziness. Right. And absolutely. Yeah. In, I got to share like a caveat, like this is all like you and I are both talking about like all football loving countries. So, so for us to commentate like on, on the extremely complex backgrounds that those teams carry as fans, like is probably a bit naive, but it seems like, um, it seems like the smaller cities, people, people travel there to attend games because they, they, they want to avoid the crowds and probably want to want to avoid the crazy guys as, as much as possible. Um, I went to, I went to Rio for the final, um, and was on Copacabana beach with uh, 110,000 Argentinians. Um, and they were, yeah, they were amazing. Like they, the, the Brazilian Argentinian, relationship i think people people think it's all hostile but they're they call themselves brothers it's a brotherly rivalry for sure but um ton argentinians like um standing standing up on on balconies like thanking brazilians for being such good hosts for the tournament um all argentinians like raising their glass like thank you like this was great um, so yeah, it's definitely, definitely obviously more crowds in bigger cities for bigger games. Um, 
and, and that can bring out the crazy, but it, it's so sweet when you see huge groups of people just exchanging with like friendly banter. There's, there's no violence. There's no racism. Um, it's just enjoying the beat of the world cup. And I wish those stories were, were told a bit more during those tournaments. Yeah. I mean, you know, I will say that the Argentinian fans, when I was in um, Russia, they impressed me the most because uh, so, I mean, you know, ran into people from all, all places, but, generally ran into large groups of dudes right like it's an international soccer tournament guys are like all right this is it we're traveling together the the market difference between the argentinians and everyone else is that they traveled as a whole family right uh mom was there dad was there the two kids are there you know you know the mom's sister maybe one of the in-laws or something like that the whole family comes and I, I thought that was really interesting. And the other fact is they, they sing a lot of different songs. Like they are not just kind of, it's not like they have like a couple fight songs. They go on and they have so many and they're just singing them in the streets all day long. It was the most, um, the most genuine fan base that I ran into in Russia was the, the Argentinians. And in, in the level of passion was, it was next level. And, I don't know. Yeah, they, they really impressed me. The, the one thing actually on the the thing about smaller cities, because I had this for something to talk about a little bit later, but why not talk about it now? Because uh, when I was looking at uh, Denver Soccer Society homepage, right, you, you have your partners listed there, right? There's, um, you know, Artisan Topics, Sarah Glaze, T-Zero Physio, Races Brewing Company, all those you know, local businesses, but then you've got also American outlaws and then Denver 2026. So uh, we're trying to bring the world cup here. And uh, which to me is like mind blowing. The idea that the world cup would come to Denver to me is like just bizarre, right? It's, it's, it's almost too, too weird to, to think that it could be true, but it is in a lot of ways, an ideal city. And like we were talking about, it's perfect for people to just come in see for a few days and then move on to the next place that they need to go to. And it doesn't have the same dramatic impact that it might um, for other cities. For instance, Chicago decided they wanted nothing to do with this, which I thought was really interesting. So we're, how are you, are you just sort of, are they just a partner of, of, you know, putting this, these two pitches out there or is there more of a, yeah, just more of a working thing going on because you're also not far from the football stadium, which is where they're planning to hold the World Cup games. So tell me about that relationship. Yeah, our our relationship with the bid is cool because it's it's symbiotic with trying to just showcase the, the soccer culture that we have here in Denver. Um, and with, with this project being a bit unique, um, the, the bid has been, been super helpful at, at highlighting it and showcasing it, um, mentioning it during, during their visit, during FIFA's visit this past week, um, and really kind of doing our best work with each other to, to share what, what both groups are up to, whether that's, um, my small, very small project of, 
getting adults playing five aside in the heart of the city as much as possible, or it's um, the, the larger PR campaign of, of getting the city to support Denver's World Cup bid and, and ultimately convincing FIFA that we'd be a, a worthwhile host city. Um, and I think everything that I've seen, Denver's in a really good spot. Um, obviously, we're biased of living here, but a city with 300 days of sunshine, a place where we could, fans can jump on a train, get to downtown, stay downtown, walk to the fan fest and walk to the stadium all without renting a car. Like there's, there's very few cities that can offer that in, in a, such a seamless manner. Um, and ultimately having a world-class stadium. Yeah. Super close to the city. Um, yeah. So it's my relationship with the bid is, is yeah. Supporting, supporting each other the best we can of kind of sharing that message and, um, ultimately hoping, hoping FIFA um, sees what we see in, in such a beautiful soccer community that we have. Yeah. Well, to me, it's felt like a no brainer since the beginning when they first released the list, I was like, aside from like Texas and Kansas city, you've got nothing else between the coasts. Uh, you, right. you need another destination centrally for people because part of what people are going to do here is drive around as well. That's, that's going to be because we don't have, you know, high speed trains to take people from city to city. Right. Uh, some people are going to choose to just rent a car and be able to go from place to place. So if you got to go from KC to LA before you can see another game, um, or you can't find something else along the way. And also, you know, just wanting one thing, if you're doing a world cup, you always want to sort of show off the different types of country that you have. Right. So you want to show, right. you know, coast, this coast, that coast, you know, Texas, the Midwest. Um, and then, of course, this is going to be a Canada and Mexico as well. And so then, yeah, you need your mountain states and, you know, everything. So there is that piece of it where I've always felt like, well, there's just no reason not to bring it here because there is the stadium and everything. So, yeah, I'm with you. I, I think uh, I think it's a no brainer. But you did actually say earlier, you said this is an underrated soccer city. And uh when I hear that from someone who comes from Southern California, I'm like, really? How do you rate us at all as a soccer city? Cause gee, I mean, you know, it's a massively different ecosystem. I mean, just talent wise alone. Right. Cause I mean, I coach around here and it's, it's uh, it's not the same as Southern California. And so I think there's an untapped thing here in terms of the culture, but it is interesting to hear you say, yeah, it's an underrated soccer city. What what sort of makes you feel that way? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I remember, yeah, playing in those first those first years of the development academy and it, a very terrible trip to Denver. Like, I think we got smacked both games. Um, so, from from my mind, is we there's always been been really good talent from the uh, the youth perspective. Um, yeah, I actually moved. I moved here from DC. So when I when I was done in Brazil, I moved to DC for for two years before I moved here to Denver. Um, and yeah, driving through driving through DC on a Saturday morning or a a Tuesday Tuesday night in the summer you'll see way more people playing here 
here in Denver, here in Colorado than in DC, which you, you might assume is a more international type type city. Um, I, yeah, I think Denver being so active in general, people are naturally gonna end up, end up playing a ton. Um, and, and for whatever reason, yeah, mo- most people just don't, don't associate those things with Denver, um, that they might automatically assume out of, out of other places. Well, that is interesting. Cause DC, you know, that Maryland, DC, Virginia area is one of the the hottest pockets of talent in the country. I mean, I, I went to school uh, at Goucher College in Baltimore, so I, and I lived in Baltimore for a few years after I graduated. And um, I've got a lot of friends that uh, coach out there. And yeah, it's pretty interesting just hearing the level, the different levels, uh, how, how um, highly structured everything is in the culture out there uh, on the East Coast. It's, it's, there's it sounds like free play and is, is not something you see as often, but people are sort of training nonstop, uh, which I found interesting. Like my, my friends have told me that they could, if they make themselves available, they can be coaching five days a week all year because there's always this demand from, you know, parents to have their kids consistently playing and active. So I, I guess that, that is an interesting one that you're in DC. You don't see people just out playing right. and stuff, <laughs> but they have so much talent. So they're, they're playing somewhere, but they're probably, you know, locked up in a complex and in little facilities and yeah, just not really enjoying the game as much. I'm, I'm not sure. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that could very well mean just my, the, the little market, and, and soccer bubble that I lived in while I was there. Like there, there's obviously, like you said, tons of good talent. There, there's a, there's a good solid soccer community. Um, but coming here, here to Denver is, has been really cool. Just hearing about all these, all these former players that have moved here. Um, guys that have played at really high levels um, and have either moved to Denver for for a new job or for quality of life. Um, and I mean, we've seen that in our kind of general city growth as a whole the last eight or nine years. But part part of what that growth has brought in has brought in some really good players and some really passionate fans. Well, and that's huge because I, I I think from my perspective, what we've needed is some. Um a little bit more of just just people with a, a genuine soccer know-how that uh, live here as opposed to sort of the groups that have been around for a long, long time. You know, there's OGs of the Colorado soccer life, you know, and 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 seeing that are still around. And, and but there hasn't it's not until the last 10 years where I think we've seen more and more people come in, which is great because you need higher level coaches and different people who have played at higher levels to be able to share whatever experiences they've had. And not just with the players that they coach, but the people that they work with as well. So that that's really helped. And then, you know, just seeing the fan base for the Rapids be uh, an ever growing thing, right. Back in the days when they were at mile high and you'd see 
you know, 65,000 open seats. You know what I mean? It's like, it was, it was crazy. And then even just a few weeks ago, I think a few of the boys that I coached, they went to the game that was like, it was pretty rainy and windy. I forget who they played. Um, and there was almost nobody there. And, and sometimes I, I see that and I'm like, man, it's rough. You watch like LAFC playing a game, you know, they're like seventh or eighth in the standings or ninth or whatever. They're struggling this season, packed house goal gets scored. Flares are going off. And then you look in the rapids and it's just like a very, yeah, very docile environment. And I, I think it's growing. Um, in one sense, but something needs to tip over. I think for people here to become genuine soccer fans and not, uh, and not just sort of casual ones, if you will. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think in Denver, I think we've got like a, a, a ton of people that, that love the game and, and love seeing it, um, seeing it played well. Um, so I, I, I'd, I'd be willing to bet like on a Saturday and Sunday morning, like, but so many people have got the Premier League on watching it. Um, unfortunately, like in, in the U S like we're a consumer culture and we're not going to buy or invest in anything that isn't easy. And like going to Rapids games, like, isn't easy, like getting, getting out to the stadium and paying 25 bucks to park. Like I would guess that's kind of been our biggest hindrance of, of seeing that club grow from a, a fan base perspective and kind of a fan passion perspective um, is just where, where are those true soccer fans living? They're living in the heart of the city and um, they, if, if they were going to pick between walking to a Rockies game or driving to a Rapids game, like they choose the Rockies nine times out of 10. Yeah. And I remember when they broke ground out there, I was like, ah, so far away from downtown. And I remember thinking like, look at Portland, look at Portland. It's not like a soccer city, but that fan base is insane because people can get out of work on a Friday or whatever the Wednesday and go and just walk straight to the game. The same way people do here with the Rockies Rockies attendances are insane. They're amazing for a team that, I mean, nationally, no one cares about. Right. Um, And they're not even that big of a deal here. It's not like you have real, all that many Rockies fans here, Um, but the stadium is gorgeous. It's right in the heart of downtown. And yeah, for anyone who doesn't know where Dick sporting goods park is, it's uh out in a field, basically, sort of not far from where the old airport used to be. And so the the one good thing is that area is developing like crazy. So hopefully all the kids that are growing up there become Rapids fans. But it's it does feel like, a like you said, the real diehard actual fans, they don't they don't live. Um, they don't live out there. I mean, it's amazing to me just watching the coverage, right? They're third in the Western Conference, and I no one talks about them. Like, no one. It's a, you can watch the MLS shows or whatever, and they don't ever recap the Rapids. They're like, no, that's a boring team to, to talk about, um, at, which I, I think is fascinating. But people sort of don't – people in a strange way don't don't seem to worry about it as much. Right. And, and in their the Rapids defense, like, 
whenever they're building that stadium, 15, probably close to 20 years now, all the data was showing that the people that are buying MLS tickets are soccer moms and their soccer families. And like putting it in a growing suburban community, like probably seemed like a great idea, but kind of as, as the Premier League's blown up here in the U S and we, we've kind of seen that fan fan base shift from being like a family thing to a, unfortunately, like primarily like male, young male activity that they share with their friends. Um, is like a hard, yeah, hard thing to sell to them to, to get out to big sporting its part. Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting point. Cause and I mean, I, I've said since the beginning as well, like you're gonna make more money off beer than dip and dots. Like, you know, and if you put you know, who's gonna who pays money for stuff? It's adults, it's not kids. So yeah, you know, if you want a stadium that's got their soccer mom with the three kids that they carpooled in for okay but you've got four grown men they're going to spend more money quite simply and i I thought that was a really interesting oversight that they had because i I do agree they looked at the metrics and they were like look it's a suburban sport but um yeah you, you you do see that and go that was someone who looked at like market reports and didn't go what is a soccer fan like what is a football fanatic like what what is that kind of person and like, like you said, a huge part of it is a, a, a bonding agent for most of the time, young men, but just I think young adults in general, being able to, to come together. And that one of the reasons why people like to go to Rockies games, like we said, it's kind of a scene. I mean, people like to go to be around other adults, you know, and sometimes you're like, I'm going to go to a Rapids game and I'm going to be surrounded Absolutely. by kids. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, yeah, I totally agree. And like the the experience of of going to like to a game is you wanna you wanna see the mix. Like you want you wanna you wanna see it like with your group of friends, you wanna see like a couple that's there on a date, like you wanna see the families. Um and I, I've I've seen that mix like so many other times at different different MLS venues, but yeah, you, you make a good point that at Rapids games, like you go there and it's like, you got the small supporter section that's like primarily dudes, but other than that, it's, it's families and it's, or it's teams, youth teams that are going together. Yeah. There's a lot. I mean, I I can tell you right now as a coach at the youth club, I get phone calls being like, Hey, you want a promotional opportunity to take your team? I'm like, I don't want to go see a game with my players. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right yeah like, yeah you, you you're with them all saturday morning and afternoon you don't want to be with them on saturday night well, <laughs> and, and the reality is when they go to a game like they're up and down they go walk around like they're not there to sit and watch it and i am and then if if there's any parents there they're like oh so tell us about that and i'm like i just want to yeah. zero everyone out and watch right but yeah if, if we're to have the same conversation yeah, eight, 10 years from now, it, it could look totally different because of like what we talked about earlier is we, we don't have like a strong embedded football culture here in the U.S. So we kind of shift with the markets, um, whatever, 
whatever's selling at that period of time is kind of how our how our game shifts. Well, and I'd say a big a big part of that comes from perception, right? Because the markets are it's kind of like the women's game where it was like all you have to do is like create it, build the product, and put it in a place where it's accessible to people, and they will go right. And then and they're starting to see that. Uh, and so with what you've done with putting two fields, I mean, right in the shadow of ball arena. So that's, uh, where the nuggets and the avalanche play. That is something someone can see, right? It's a tangible thing. Wow. Look, there's these two soccer fields that have been just sat in a parking lot. And there's always people there. Like there's always every single evening, every time they've got, they got drop-ins, they got leagues. And it's just the small thing that someone who's monitoring markets might go, there's something, there's something here. And so for you to just create that reality where someone has that visual, uh, that, I mean, that, that could be a major contributor as well. Yeah. And like, I, I hope we do our small part of, yeah, telling that, telling that story of, of the talent that, that lives here in Denver and passion that lives here and boulders that that control the game essentially like can notice that and make make small improvements to to the fan experience whether that's in person at the rapid stadium or it's um watching games on a tv but with a with a large group um yeah i hope, I hope we do our small part of just yeah telling that message um but my my, my true goal with, with this project is, is basically just replicating what's yeah. Replicating projects that are basically in every neighborhood and in South America and Europe. Um, it, yeah, it's not a massive like groundbreaking idea. It's just put, put up fields that are nice to play on in an area that is scenic and accessible and the people that have that have played the game and know the game like we'll pack it out yeah and well so funny enough i I mean i've i said for a while one thing that i would like to do is uh (laughs) buy a lot somewhere and just turn it into a a soccer court right and I was like, but it's got to be really difficult to figure out where you can do that because there's residential things, there's zoning and all that. So this is something that's fascinating to me. Logistically, how did this all, was it pretty smooth? Was it, I mean, it seems like a kind of massive undertaking in one sense, but then I don't, I don't really know. Yeah. It's, talk to me about the logistics and how it all panned out really. Yeah, it's. For sure, yeah. The um, what made it super easy is the product itself, um, and what I mean by that is the wall with integrated goals all tying in together. Um, it's product made by Urban Soccer Park, which is a a group out of Boise, Idaho. Um, and w- what's cool about the system is that. Uh, Nothing actually crazy. So I didn't have to dig any foundations. I honestly didn't even have to use any concrete anchors. Um, everything is from a, a planning 
and city permitting perspective, um, even though I, I plan to be there for a number of years, like I could theoretically pick up both fields in two weeks and redeploy them somewhere else in two weeks. Um, because the, the with counterweights, um, obviously there, there's no there's no safety problems, even though it's not not anchored to the ground. It's yeah, theoretically temporary. Yeah, that's that's nice. Be able to just fold it up and pack it up. That's really cool. Urban Soccer Park. They're um, so they, they they produce these kind of small mini fields, basically. Or just at least the materials to build them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, yeah, yeah they manufacture many, many fields. So it's it's a turnkey process of um, finding finding a space of land, figuring out how big you want it. They come in in ninety days after that. They you you're playing. Um, so they've they've got projects on rooftops in New York City. Um, right tiny little dirt lots in the middle of nowhere, but now have like this amazing turf field, um, pretty much activating, activating real estate. That is, that's in a really good location, but just isn't ready for anything else yet. Right. And who did you have to go through, uh, for space in that lot did you have to go through ball arena or the city um that's a that lot is a private owner um so it's yeah it's all my, my lease is to the private owner um i did have to get like city approval because it's it's not zoned for athletic use like it, it's just a commercial zoning um so yeah i got a special use permit um and yeah, they're, they're super easy to work with and super supportive of getting, getting people into a part of the city that isn't always used and getting people outside um, in, in a COVID era. So. That's, yeah, and not a factor that I really thought of is that <laughs> this all, you know, your idea and everything obviously starts before COVID and then here you are putting this, you know, trying to put the finishing touches on all of this, right? And we built, started building the first week of August, 2021. We had people play, we had like a, our game, August 16th. Nice. Yeah, I've seen, I, I've been by, I've seen people playing. Yeah. I went and took a look one night. And uh, I'm excited because now that my soccer season as a coach ends, I can actually start playing because my, my evenings are devoured by uh, my team. So I, I barely get to actually play. So I'm, I'm like stoked that you actually are going to be able to, that you're going to be able to continue during the winter time because I think a lot of people's perception is, oh, Colorado, snow, you can't just play outside in the wintertime. But that's totally untrue. And right. And I, I think that that's another piece of optics that's going to be so powerful is, you know, people driving down the highway and looking off and being like, wait, what? Like, that's still going on or and just another piece to uh, to sort of give it momentum over the over the course of those winter months when a lot of people do pack stuff up, you know, and 
So I think that's great. And you said that you hope to do this for years to come and you hope it's there. That that's music to my ears. Cause I was like, I wonder if there's also the permit, like permits are going to run out on you or you can only have it for a temporary amount of time before you really have to, to chase it down. But um, as long as you're the landlord, right. The owner of the lot doesn't just decide something else. You might be there for a good amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. My, my lease allows for that. And um, yeah, if my landlord wants to put up a condo building there, then obviously I got to move. Um, but yeah, this, the, the city's been, been helpful to, you know, give me, give me the green light to operate for, for a few years. And if I'm, I'm still there, it'll be really easy to re-up. Um, and yeah, I, I'm looking forward to, to playing through the winter because yeah, like you said, people, people think Colorado think people put their boots away for five months like if unless it's obviously like super muddy for because of the snow like people are going to be they'll play like so with a turf surface that i can salt um and, and it won't impact play won't destroy the turf um yeah i'm, I'm looking forward to people playing through the winter obviously our numbers are going to be a bit lower um and we're not going to try to play when it's five degrees out but um People in Denver kind of get cabin fever enough in the winter that, that they'll be out there. Oh, for sure. Oh, people will be out there. I mean, and it's interesting to me because you what you offer are not just leagues for adults, but also, you know, field rentals. You know, if you want to do parties, youth teams being able to rent out the space. What has been for you the most, you know, maybe on one side financially lucrative, but also the most impactful, like, uh, just thing that you provide, which, which of all those sort of services, the sort of has been the best. Um, been super impressed with like the, the level of play and the quality of players, um, and the consistency. Like I think in a lot of leagues, you see a lot of adult social leagues by week six or seven, if you're playing the team in last place, like you show up and that team, your opposing team never play, never comes. Like that has not been the case for us. Like even, even the teams without a win, like guys are out there, like still really enjoying themselves. Um, so yeah, leagues have been great. I think drop-ins have been the coolest um, kind of cultural aspects feeling like you're you're in an area that really in a place that that appreciates the game um, drop-ins have been a cool thing that highlights that because are getting guys from from all over the world like i think denver in general gets a ha, has a a reputation to not be super diverse um like if someone came to drop-ins like they, they wouldn't see that. They would think totally opposite. We've got to play with us. Um, several pockets of European guys. Like there's a group of Dutch guys, there's a group of Spanish guys. Um, several Africans come and play with us. Obviously, like a large nation um, in, in Denver Metro comes and play with us. And then, like your, your standard white dudes like myself, like it, it's a cool mix of, of that. 
and that and that kind of i mean that really does go back to that you know part of you from your youth right you said that growing up playing in southern california you were pretty much the only white kid on your team so you really learned a lot about acceptance into a community as you said and also yeah how much soccer can be a binding agent really and and i i think that's great because you know me i, I having grown up here i actually and i i grew up in in evergreen so i grew up with nothing but white kids right but yeah. i also I, my parents are from europe my mom's from france and my dad's from england my mom took us traveling all over the place so it you know if we went to latin america when i was like 12 or something if i could find a way to kick a ball around with a few kids any any weirdness just dissolved and went away and so i've experienced that around the world and uh and even just just here and i think it's really really cool to see that you know you've taken something that was a little a lesson you learned when you were young and that over time it's kind of filtered through to this thing where now you've just put two fields up and you get to watch that exact process take place. I think that's, that's gotta be super rewarding. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel, feel super lucky. Um, of guys coming to play with us and like them, them sharing their, their refugee story of how they ended up here in the U S um, like coming from a war torn country. Um, and remembering playing soccer in this type of environment in their home country and never really having it for 10, 15 years. Um, so really giving, giving those guys a, a, a small piece of home, yeah, giving them a, a fun place to play and a place to belong um, that, that might be hard to come by here. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been really cool. That's, I think that's great. I mean, just being just being able to see that I you can't can't really put a price on those relationships that you build through that. And again, it's incredible that a, a space, just a rectangle on the floor, and and a ball are able to really produce those results. And I mean, I would think that there's probably a lot of people around the country that kind of have this same little idea of wanting to create a soccer field, a small little five aside, two of them, you know, and put them right smack in the middle of somewhere. Uh, I think a lot of people see this as a, something they would like to bring to their town. I know target, they had that. Um, I'm sure they still, they're still doing it. The, they sponsor these courts sort of that have the walls around them and everything, but, and they'll sponsor them to be built in certain neighborhoods. There's one at a small school, in um in the coal neighborhood just uh just north of yeah. downtown um it's a really cool little court only problem is since covid they actually fenced off the school uh uh before covid you could actually walk out there and play whenever you wanted now uh the school's fenced off which is kind of a bummer but so if there's anyone out there who wants to do this what's what advice and message would you give to to someone who's thinking I'd like to start, you know, put some fields somewhere, but I don't even know where to start. I don't know what to do. Might be too much work. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, at two point, because those U S soccer foundation products that, um, that 
worked with brands like Target and um, I think Adidas is, is super involved with them. Um, obviously doing really good work, like providing safe places to play kids like at their school is, is super needed. Um, and and I, I can't wait to hear the stories of like the, the players 10, 15 years from now saying like, yeah, like I, I first started playing futsal on a foundation field and like, look at me now. Um, yeah. So yeah, not discounting their prod, their projects by any means. Um, but I think with just how, how five aside is played, um, from what I experienced in Brazil, uh, um, is guys like football played on a hard surface, um, similar to a basketball court. And then there's five aside, like they, they call it like society fields. Um, and that's usually turf to where you could wear cleats if you want, you could wear two turf shoes, you could wear flats if you want. Um, so that's kind of why I decided to go, to go that route of, of playing with turf. Um, I was a, as a goalkeeper growing up and, and in college. So there's some selfishness there. Like I, I wouldn't want to dive on concrete versus, versus a padded surf surface. Um, so yeah, to answer your question, um, if, if you had a dream in, in cities and other parts of the country, like I guarantee it's bigger than you think. Like I guarantee there's guys there that, um, are, we're either a fan first and really want to start playing more and are kind of just generally athletic people, or it's people that played in the U S growing up, um, and kind of took that career as far as they could, or it's people, it's the immigrant story of people who came to the U S, um, and, and missed that, that soccer, soccer environment that they experienced back home. And obviously those immigrants are sprinkled all over the country, even in the smallest of towns. Um, yeah, find, find a space that for the moment is useless. And yeah, call, call the folks at Urban Soccer Park. Um, they can, yeah, in a, in a, in a matter of months, transform a, a dirt lot into like a packed facility. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's awesome, right? The, like, just the idea of uh, take, look for a place that is basically defunct. You know, I, I love that as a, a, a way to see it. Cause I, I, you know, I think a lot of people might look at some kind of patch of real estate and be like, oh, wouldn't it be great if it's in that perfect location? Instead, it's like, no, find the place that looks useless and turn it into something valuable and you'll see an even more you'll see a bigger response to it. That's, that's an important lesson for anyone looking to do that because it's not the first thing you think is, you know, it's not your first reaction is what's empty and just needs filling. Yeah. Like the urban soccer park did a project in San Jose earlier this year. Um, and it's in a, in a rough part of San Jose. Um, is definitely experiencing like the homelessness crisis. Um, but it's a old Chinese restaurant that has been empty for 
I think a year that has a huge, had a huge parking lot. So they put, they put too many pitches basically at at an L um, in the parking lot of the Chinese food restaurant. And then the local club now is like a clubhouse in, in what served as a restaurant. So, Oh, that's amazing. um, Their landlord loves them because they're, they're giving them rent, obviously, and they could get it at a better price than than like a hot spot in town. Um, and yeah, it's it's in, in investing in in areas typically seen as useless. And that's that's a perfect way to put it too. That you, you got to love that. You can just imagine the L of the parking lot in a Chinese restaurant and then for them to take it over as their clubhouse. That's, that's brilliant. Right. And no, I mean, what, what it does, it goes to show that it's, it, it's not as difficult as it may seem. And like you said, it's the people are there. The interest in it is there. And it's one of the reasons why I think that this, uh, the 2026 world cup, it really is exciting as a, as a prospect to see how much, of that fandom really pops out of the woodworks. It, to me, it really does feel like it, it could be the turning point for seeing and the passion really kind of erupt from all sides. I think there's a lot of people hoping that the U S is actually going to win that one. Uh, Cause it'll be on home soil, but I think it's actually more right. that's, I think that could be the real clincher for churning out generations of good players uh, versus just everyone's excited to, just watch it on tv or something you know totally and yeah i mean it goes back to our yeah that conversation of what makes american soccer culture like what style of play do we prefer what are fans like what are fans known for around the world um and and hopefully it's kind of a a blend of what our our people are like it's a blend of all those all those mixes of, of people that have come to this country and made it their home um, that we, the, the world cups allows us to take them into second and third generation of those immigrants and really cement in what is American soccer culture and, and what's valuable about it. Yeah. And it does, it does. When you put it that way, you do kind of think there, there is a lot of this that is really in its infancy and it's going to take these connections and just these different things to be built. It's kind of like when you listen to the guys that were on the, you know, U S national team in the nineties, they talk about how like they grew up in a community where they're just, you know, there were a few Scotsmen that were that started leagues and, you know, got people playing and, you know, these kids, they didn't get to watch soccer ever. They just, they just got, had these foreigners that came in and gave them something. And it, it just happened to turn out to be, you know, amazing for them. You got guys like John Harks or something. I mean, his story, I remember him talking about it. It's like the most random thing, right? You just like live in a town and these dudes from Scotland are like, no, we want to play. And there's just like a small community of them and they bring it. And then all of a sudden you've got national team level players. So it, it, it can happen out of very little. And I think sort of just seeing these little patches of grass, of well, turf, um, but that little patch of green in the middle of a massive parking lot, it does kind of give you that out of a, out of a concrete, the uh, grows a rose or the weeds get through. And it's like, it, it sort of feels 
metaphorically nice for it's coming, it's building and, and it's just a matter of time. Absolutely. And yeah, kind of telling you my, my story with the game, like it even starts before like that, of me being eight years old and only, only white kid out there. Like it, was, it came from my dad. Like I'm a second generation player um, of him playing soccer, like in the, in the mid seventies um, and kind of getting that taste of, of the beauty of it. And like me sharing that beauty with me. Um, so I, I feel super privileged for that. Um, and yeah, like, like you mentioned, like it's just building on each other. Like we're, sadly not not even sadly it's just kind of the reality of it is like we're just like you said we're in the infancy of the game um a lot of the a lot of the shots that were called for our game like in in the 80s and the 90s were by non-soccer guys and by selling things and now like those decisions about guys that have been kicking each other since they were little and like, they know what's, what's authentic, what's true. And that's only going to help our, the quality of players we, we push out. I agree with that completely. Again, just remembering what, what people were around uh, when I was a kid, uh, people who were in charge of clubs, directors, a lot of these people were actually just parents who were really, wanting to help with whatever organization their kids were a part of. They weren't soccer people. They didn't know, they didn't have any kind of technical director understanding whatsoever. They just knew how to organize, you know, stuff with the city, make sure we got fields set up, talk to the school, you know, deal with the payment stuff. But it has changed immensely. Like now you can't be a director without having a license, like like a B or an A, you know? Right. And it's, I mean, it's what was like, they were doing the best they can in that time. And like, like, where would we be without, without those, those parents who had no idea what soccer was, but were willing to figure it out. Like we'd we'd be in a worse spot than we are now. Um, But that's just kind of the, yeah, the nature of, of like a subculture growing and uh, like developing those, those generational technical and tactical skills that are, that are passed on. Yeah. And it's truly a culture. I mean, really that's, that's the, I think that's the crux of it all is how do you build a culture? It has to be something genuine. And so, like you said, all these parents who knew nothing about the game, who did everything for us to be able to sort of like have an experience. And like you said, meanwhile, the people who were in positions to sort of sell the game, whether it was the way it was, broadcast on television or things like this thing being able to create locations for people to play for at for cheap right um with uh, somewhere accessible all of that was done wrong like you said for a good amount of time because it wasn't soccer people doing it well now in a way we've kind of fully taken over the space which is ours anyway and you're seeing things done right done well totally and i yeah i think my i was thinking about this the other day is like when i 10 15 years from now like i want to i want to look at like the front office of every, every mls team 
And I want to see guys with like a strictly soccer background. Like I want to see guys that grew up playing, played in college, did their best to play at a high level. Like no offense against the other sports, but I don't want, I don't want baseball guys or, or former NFL guys calling the shots for the MLS anymore. Like we've, we've got, we've got, we've got like the, the talent in the NCAA for, for players to come out from playing and move to, move into the administration side of things and the marketing side of things. Like um, I just, that's kind of like a hope of mine 10, 15 years from now. I like that. That's one I hadn't fully considered. Not only, not only necessarily people at the top, but yeah, like you said, people who work in marketing and stuff. Um, sometimes I see marketing done by some MLS clubs and I'm like, that video is weirdly like it, it fits with stuff that's going on, but it's not really a soccer video and you can, you just feel it, you know? And so I, I think that's an interesting point is how many people in these offices, um, at least have an experience in the game and absolutely like do they do we need to have like the the mls it, like front offices essentially ran by all former players and all guys that played at youth national team level like no it's very unrealistic we just need guys that the guys and girls like absolutely guys and girls um that that pl- that played at some level and that understand like the nature of the game yeah. And the nature of the game is the key. There are people who have just gone through all the different processes, no matter what the level you've achieved, because I do think that's important is, you know, me, I played D three ball, enjoyed it, had fun. Um, and I'm a coach, but being able to speak to people who have either played at the professional level or not, it's, it's really interesting to talk because everyone's experience is kind of similar. Whether regardless of the league that you got to, everyone's experience is pretty similar, whether it's the coaches you had, the, you know, the injuries, the moments, everyone kind of felt the same sort of things. So I I think that's, you know, once again, it's like that binding agent within the sport as well is to to get people together to work to make it better, which we all want to see. Absolutely. Yeah. It's all the the game is exactly the same. It's just, yeah. People run at a different pace and the ball, the ball's played at a different pace. Like, like you said, all of our experiences are the same. Um, and yeah, pointing it back to what we're doing at Denver soccer society is like, that's, what's, what's really cool about it is um, there, there's people that maybe, maybe played in high school, like, or, like guys that like, yeah, we've got guys that played pro in Europe and South America um, that that play with us, um, and they play together. Like the the game is the same. Um, that the nature of the game is the same. Yeah, one one player is technically better, and yeah, moves a little quicker, but can all enjoy it. Well, I. I hope um, you'll you'll be seeing me out there at some point soon. This uh, before the year is over, that's that's for sure, because um, I've been really excited about this whole project. And as a Denverite, it's like it's just it's great to see. And I, I'm I'm super happy that 
you coming from, a, you know, you're not from here, but you came here and you saw something you're like, I want to add. And I'm grateful for that. And I think it's also just what an interesting little project, to, you know, to see you've planted a seed. We'll see where it goes, but I think there's, there's no doubt you're already just seeing the benefits of what can happen when you do something like this. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's probably a good place to close out, but anything else you want to say about Denver soccer society before we do? Yeah, we, but yeah, I appreciate all the kind words and, and having me on. Like, yeah, I honestly do feel super lucky that, um, I get to play around with, with the guys and girls that, that play at, at DSS. Like, um, yeah, just super, super grateful that, that they choose to play with us and, and, and enjoying that. Yeah, everybody's welcome. We do what we call drop in play. So you come and play 10, pay 10 bucks. We play 10 minute games. Loser comes off, rotate in and out, um, play for three hours if you want, play for an hour if you want. Um, so that'd, that'd be my message to everybody. Just an open invitation to come check us out Thursday night or Saturday morning. Easiest advice ever. Just come out and play. That's that's, exactly. that's that that's beautiful. I love that. That's simple. Well, Sam, thank you so much for the time. Um, and like I said, I you'll see me out there at some point soon. But this has been this has been a lot of fun for me. And just also, it's it's about growing the community. That's kind of why I I decided to start doing this was uh, to be able to just talk into a microphone about soccer, which I think uh, is therapeutic for me to a certain degree, but also to uh, build more of a community of people that are like-minded in this sense. So thanks a Absolutely. ton. And hopefully, Absolutely, yeah. hopefully we, you know, hopefully you've inspired some people around that some, some people listening to go, man, like I can do this. I'm going to do this. I just think that would be an awesome result for, you know, for what we're doing here. Absolutely. Yeah. The mar the market's bigger than, bigger than we think and there's players that are dying to play outside and not play off the walls like in a hockey hockey arena i feel you on that all right well i gotta run to a practice um but thanks so much and uh and yeah let's let's keep up and talk real soon sounds good man all right thanks a lot have a we'll good one you as well bye well that was fun I hope everyone listening enjoyed it as much as I did. This was just a really nice way to think about what we can do to just grow the game. And it doesn't take a whole lot. It doesn't take something massive. It doesn't take, you know, buying a giant warehouse and putting in a big, big in indoor facility. That is not what is required. What is required is to just have some passion for the game and try to share it with others. And if you can do that, you will create a community. That's really what this is all about. Campfire Football is a community. It's a small building one. I am so happy to have had Sam Chapel on to be a part of it. And hopefully, things just keep on growing from here. Thanks, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. This is Campfire Football.